Mark 6, looking at verses 1 through 6 this evening, something God cannot do. Today we come to a very important lesson in the narrative of Mark. Uh, this comes right on the heels of, of, to this point at least, the climax of the hysterical, historical narrative. Uh, as we've said many times over the past several weeks, Jesus has now shown his ultimate power over everything, over sickness, over disease, over demons, over nature, and, and even over death. If we might put it this way, there is nothing that Jesus has left to prove. He has proven himself to be the one of whom the prophets foretold. He has shown himself to be Emmanuel, that God with us, the Son of God coming with authority. And as we talk at the end of Mark 4 about the fact that as a rule, Jesus did these great wonders in response to faith, with the notable exception to this point in the book of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, where they lacked faith, and yet they came to Christ, and carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus stilled the winds and the waves, and then, of course, rebuked them for their faithlessness. But as we've walked through the book, in chapter 1, there was a leper that came to Jesus. And if you recall, he said in verses 40 and 41, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And in response to such confident faith, Jesus healed him, saying, I will be thou clean. Then in chapter 2, men lowered another man sick of the palsy into the house where Jesus was, having taken off the roof in order to access him on that day. And the text says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then in verse 11, subsequently Jesus heals him, saying, Arise, take up thy bed, go thy way into thine house. And with these, we, we see, saw all the lessons that Jesus was teaching otherwise, but we see this trend. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I will be thou clean. When Jesus saw the faith of these men, he tells the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, and then arise, take up thy bed, go thy way into thine house. Then in chapter 3, Jesus speaks to a man with a withered hand, and he tells that man to stretch forth his hand, and the man simply obeys in faith, and that hand is restored like the other. In Mark chapter 4, we find that anomaly, right? As our Savior calms the storm, he then rebukes his disciples for, his faithful, faith, for their faithlessness. Uh, these men who had had the faith to leave all and follow still had much to learn about faithfulness as a whole in which we are reminded that we who have chosen to follow still have much to learn by way of faithfulness ourselves. And then last time in chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood desires that if she may but touch the garment of Jesus, she would be made whole. As we talked about even this morning, uh, a woman who was convinced that when she, as an unclean woman with an issue of blood for 12 years, as she touched Jesus' garment, she would not make him unclean, but that he would make her clean. And she does touch him, and she is made whole. And Jesus' response in verse 34, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And I love that. Go in peace and be whole. And that brings us to today. With this foundation of Jesus' love and his power and his character, and with that foundation, we step into something new again. The Bible says in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. So Jesus leaves Capernaum again 
Uh, in Mark chapters 4 and 5, Jesus went into Galilee, uh, not Galilee, Jesus went into Gadara, right? He went into Decapolis. He went into an area that was more Syrian-dominated than it was uh, Jewish-dominated, and he interacted with the demoniac of Gadara and the people of Gadara. Uh, this is nothing like that. Jesus is not leaving uh, Judea, or, or well, he's not in Judea. He's not leaving Galilee at this point. He's not leaving Israel at this point. Uh, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes home. Now, we know that Jesus' base of operation during his ministry was, in fact, Capernaum. Jesus would regularly go to Judea. We know that as well, as he would take several trips down a year for the various feasts and such, and we see those uh, recountings particularly in the book of John. But here we see Jesus go into what the scriptures called his own country, with Luke chapter 4, verse 16, informing us that this was, in fact, the region, of, uh, the region around and the city of Nazareth. Jesus is going home. Jesus is going to the place where he grew up. Jesus is going to the people who knew him as a child. Jesus is going to the people who grew up with him. And the text tells us that his disciples followed him into his own country. Verse 2. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? So Jesus begins to teach in the synagogue. This is what Jesus did in the places he went. He teaches in the synagogue. He is, in fact, a teacher. He's a rabbi. And so uh, probably teaching the same stuff he had taught in Capernaum. Uh, we can see snippets of Jesus' teachings. Usually we're not seeing those, those snippets necessarily in uh, the synagogues. And, and, and when we are, we're seeing him teaching people who are responding to him in the synagogues. Uh, but he's teaching probably those same things. Uh, maybe he ended up in Nazareth because after healing Jairus' daughter, uh, crowds were at such a fever pitch in Capernaum that he had no ability to functionally teach there anymore. Maybe he needed a break. Maybe he needed to get away because of the crowds and the thronging, which was already the case as he was leaving the boat and going to Jairus' house. And then uh, imagine what it must have been like after the testimony of Jairus' daughter. Uh, maybe he just wanted to see his family. Who knows? But either way, Jesus comes to Nazareth and he teaches. And the people were astonished, the Bible says. Where did this come from, they ask? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this authority? And they even connect his teaching in this manner to his works. Even such might, uh, mighty works are wrought by his hands. So they see his authority. They, they understand his teachings. They, they acknowledge it to be wisdom. And they see the mighty works. So what this means is that they do, in fact, see it. Just as the scribes and the Pharisees in Capernaum, they see it. They understand. They don't say, this guy's teaching craziness. They say, this man is teaching authority. They don't say, uh, this man is, is, is here uh, doing magic tricks. They say, this man is doing mighty works. They recognized the mighty works for what they are. They heard the teaching and recognized it as uh, for what it was, authority and wisdom. And this is important for us to understand because something startling is going to happen here in Nazareth. And I actually cut these people off in the middle of their reasoning. I gave you the encouraging part. Verse 2 talks about all the things they saw and, and, and all of the stuff that we, we would want to hear. 
He has authority. He has wisdom. Uh, he does mighty works. Those are all the things we would expect to hear, that we'd want to hear. But I, but I, I, I cut it off in the middle of what they were saying, and it kind of goes downhill from here. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So these men go immediately from questions recognizing wisdom, authority, and power to doubt of who he is. Sure, he's got all this wisdom. Sure, he has all of this authority and he speaks with this authority. Yes, he has this power by which he has done these mighty works, but wait a minute. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Yeah, right. They, they, they say he was conceived and born while she was a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, I, re I remember hearing about that. Uh, I, I remember the talk about that, but that was a long time ago. I mean, this is just Jesus. His brothers, James, Joseph, Judah, Simon, are, are, aren't, aren't those his brothers? Don't we know them too? His sisters, aren't they here with us? Aren't they the ones that buy bread in our stores and we work with them and we joke with them and we make small talk with them? And then the Bible gives us this very tragic statement. And they were offended at him. The word offended is an important one to understand. Today, the word offended is used all the time. Uh, everything is offensive. Everyone is offended. And generally, the idea of offense in our culture is that someone has an emotional or philosophical objection to something or someone, to something that someone has done, perhaps, or has said. This upsets them, and so they are offended. And this is a similar idea to what we find here, except that uh, in, in the, the Greek, in, in, our, in our King James Bibles, the idea of offense is not just the idea that I have an emotional reaction or I don't like something, but rather it is that I get tripped up by something. It causes me to stumble. Something that comes into one's life, the, being that a thought or an action, which causes someone to divert from a good path onto a bad path. And so it is the idea that they were on this path and they understood these things. He has wisdom. He has authority. He has power. So they're on this path and they're getting it. And then they said, but wait a minute, he's just Jesus. And then they fell off the path. Wait a minute, we know his brothers and they fell off the path. Wait a minute, his sisters are among us and they fell off the path. That's the idea of offended here. It's not that their me his message was inherently offensive. Now with the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, his message was inherently offensive. It doesn't necessarily mean here that, that his message was inherently offensive, although it's quite possible it was. But the idea of offended here is they, 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 they were getting it, they were seeing it, and then they were tripped up by something. Something caused them to stumble, and the thing that caused them to stumble at the things that he was saying was that Jesus is Jesus, that he grew up with them, that they could not transition to Jesus, the man, to Jesus the Son of God, in their minds. They saw the power with their eyes. They heard the authority with their ears. They acknowledged it to be wisdom. But then the practical considerations of Jesus' life imposed themselves upon their thinking, and they rejected who Jesus' works and his teaching compelled them to believe he was, the very Son of God with authority, in deference to the familiarity that they had with him. 
And this is the epitome of that old cliche. Familiarity breeds contempt. And in reference to this, I ask you to think back with me to that parable that Jesus gave at the beginning of Mark 4, the parable that is often called the parable of the seeds and the sower, but we might more accurately say the parable of the soils. And Jesus gives four categories of soil here. The wayside, characterized by hearts which were hard to the seeds of God's word, which are easily snatched away by the devil because they took no root at all. Stony ground, characterized by hearts which were defined by shallow roots, unwilling to believe when confronted with persecution or hardship. Thorny ground, characterized by hearts which were unwilling to believe when confronted with the promises of this life, riches, comfort, honor, power. And then the good ground, characterized by hearts which are willing to believe, are willing to receive and so bear fruit. Not all the same amount of fruit. Some of them bear uh, 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but they bear fruit. And here we find those who reject Jesus because of their familiarity with him. We might see this as connected to some fear of persecution, uh, being mocked or scorned. We might see this as connected to a desire for the things of this world to continue in their peaceful existence in Nazareth and not have one who is of them their own shake things up. But it seems more likely that what happened here is they listened and they heard, and this was interesting, but then the very fact that Jesus was calling them to acknowledge his identity as the Son of God rather than his identity as that kid that they grew up with simply hardened their hearts and made it the wayside. They simply said, look, whether or not this is good, whether or not this is authority, whether or not this is power, we're just not going to take it from the lips of this man. We're not going to receive that this man who we grew up with, who we saw grow up, is in fact the Son of God. In other words, I believe that they were not looking for a reason to believe, they were looking for a reason not to believe, and that's wayside. And it comes with tremendous consequences. So in Mark 4, that same Mark 4, a little bit later in that chapter, we see the disciples, as we talked about already, falter in their faith. They were in a boat. They were feeling like they were about to die rather than flee to their Savior in faith and expectation or rather say, look, the boat is not going to capsize when the guy who created the winds and the waves is in it. They accuse the Savior of not caring whether they lived or died. Carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus had to rebuke them. First, he rebuked the winds and the waves. Then he rebuked them. But he didn't just rebuke them. He did a mighty work before them, didn't he? He stilled the winds and the waves with the word of his voice. And the Bible says the disciples feared. What we saw in that passage were not men that were looking for a reason not to believe. What we saw in that passage were men with blind spots, men with weaknesses, men who were pushed beyond the, the capacities of their understanding or willingness to acknowledge uh, Christ's power, men who in their moment of trial and tribulation forgot the one who they served, forgot the authority of the man that was in the boat with them. And this happens, I wish it didn't, but, but and I, don't, I don't want it to happen, but, but this happens, doesn't it? In my life and in yours. It happens that we're following 
And we're willing to leave all and follow. We're willing to leave that table of customs. We're willing to leave the nets and the dad and, and the servants. And we're willing to go and follow Jesus. But then come the winds and the waves. And those winds and waves are things that we were not quite expecting. We were not quite up for. And in that moment, we falter in our faith. And we look up at Jesus and say, Jesus, carest thou not that I perish? And then Jesus does what he doesn't have to do, but what, what he does because he loves us. He goes ahead and he rescues us. He stills the winds and the waves. And then he says, why didn't you trust me? Where was your faith? That's very different than what we see this evening, though. These men and women were not trying to navigate faith in the midst of temptations to do otherwise. These men and women were looking for a reason not to believe in, in the midst of the tremendous evidence to the contrary. These men and women saw the evidence. It was before their eyes and they said, but this is just Jesus. And this disposition of unbelief came with a tragic consequence in Nazareth. Look at verses four through six with me. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hand upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. So Jesus replies to their reasoning, saying, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, among his own kin, and in his own house. This is an older way of saying the same thing that we just said in our cliched form. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus states that they were unwilling to hear him, unwilling to regard his authority, not because his message was not authoritative or because his works are not genuine, but only because they are so familiar with him. And this is not necessarily a... a um, Difficult thing for us to contemplate. For me as a pastor, this is not a difficult thing to contemplate. When I started preaching here at 26 years old, um, I was the age of many, I was the age or younger than many of the people's children in the church. And I remember a little bit of a struggle there for them to regard me with a measure of, um, of respect or of, of, of ordained authority uh, because I was like their kids. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I grew the beard and why it was probably not a bad thing that I went bald. Uh, because these things helped age me a little bit and thus gave me a little bit of that gravitas that I wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, so we know this from, a, um, from, from just like your basic human nature perspective, right? We know this idea, but, but then I'm not Jesus, Right, And I'm not doing mighty works among you, and I'm not teaching with my own authority. I'm relaying the, the, the Bible's authority to you. But Jesus said they were unwilling to hear him because he was in his own country, among his own kin. And so they simply rejected him out of hand. And then comes to that tragedy, verse 5. And he could do there no mighty work, and he could there do no mighty work, excuse me, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. Jesus was not able to do mighty works there. He laid his hands on a few sick folk, he healed those few sick folk. But we aren't talking here in Nazareth about leopards, lepers, excuse me, being healed, the lame walking, demons cast out, diseases cured. We're not reading any of that here. He comes, he teaches, 
They say, we know this guy. He heals a few sick folk. He begins teaching in the villages roundabout. Jesus could not do those things. And this is connected to their unbelief. An unbelief which verse 6 says, Jesus could only marvel at. So Jesus leaves Nazareth, having done no great work. And what a sad statement that is to have to make. Contrast that with the man with the withered hand. Jesus is teaching. Excuse me, not the man with the withered hand. This is the leper. Contrast that with this leper. That man says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. It is not that you aren't able, Jesus, that leper said. I'm not concerned that you're able. The question is whether you're willing. And of course, Jesus said, I am willing. Even touch the unclean man. I'm willing to do great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I'm willing to show myself strong, and he did it. And here, Jesus comes with the same willingness to show himself strong. He comes back to his own people, the people that he's familiar with, the people that he has spent time with, the people that in, in, in the way that we might understand as it relates to places when we, when we go back home, when we go back to familiar places, people that we have at least that sentimental connection to. And when, we, and when he came back to that place willing to do these mighty works, his kinsmen, his neighbors said, Jesus, we see your authority. We acknowledge your power, but we're unwilling to receive you. What a contrast from that leper in chapter one. If you are willing, Jesus, you can make me clean. And Jesus comes with all willingness in Mark chapter six, and they say, we're not willing to receive you. And this is fascinating. Impudent, brash, but actually not very uncommon. This is actually the doctrine of the devil going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, isn't it? This is the doctrine which Adam embraced, which Cain embraced, which the, the, the pre-flood civilization embraced. The God of the universe stands before you in holiness, but also in love, in justice, but also in mercy. And in that love and in that mercy, he reaches out to his creation and he says, I love you. And I want to do great things for you. And his creation looks at him and, he, and they say, we see your authority. We acknowledge your power. We know of your mighty works. And you're reaching out to receive me. But here's the thing. I don't receive you. I don't accept you. I reject you. And this is the singular sin which the character of God demands that he cannot forgive. The one sin that God cannot overlook. The one thing that is in fact sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Unbelief. Rejection. This is the one thing that God's character will not allow him to purge. And this is the essence of the gospel itself, is it not? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So as Jesus gives that great verse in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He goes on to say, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. And why? Because he's a terrible, rotten sinner? No. Because he's shaking his fist at God? Uh-uh. 
but because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God has, in consistency with his justice and his mercy, sent his son to die upon the cross, to shed his blood on the tree. And on that cross, the very son of God, clothed in power and authority, bore your sin and bore my sin and made full provision for our forgiveness. On that day, the father showed us just how much he loved us so that we can sing that song that we sang this evening, Jesus loves even me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. The confidence in the simplicity of that song. It's not, I am so hopeful that Jesus loves me. I am so wondering if Jesus loves me. It's, I am so glad that Jesus loves me. On that day, Jesus Christ showed just how willing he was to give any man life who would come unto him. And now the gospel goes forth in mercy and in love, calling all men not to earn God's favor, not to merit God's favor, not to buy God's favor, but only to be placed into Christ who has merited God's favor, my guilt resting on Christ, so Christ's favor can rest on me. And God forbid that any man, woman, or child under the sound of my voice should see such an offer, should see the willingness of the creator of all flesh to redeem you through his shed blood and say, no. And say, Jesus, I see that you are willing, but I am not. To say, Jesus, I see that you have offered, and I say no. God forbid that we would be offended, having seen his authority, having seen his power, having seen his works, and having seen his love, that we would be offended in him. Jesus, we see your authority, we acknowledge your power, but we are unwilling to receive you. And when we do, if we do say such a thing, God can do nothing for you. His character constrains him to respond to belief. And if we reject said belief, he is constrained to reject us back. He can do no mighty works among us because of our unbelief. And so we see this as it relates to the gospel. That he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What is the condition by which a man enters into eternal life? It is belief alone. It is that moment when we accept Jesus' person and his work as the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It is when, as Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, we repent of our dead works, anything and everything that we might be resting in to make us right with God, to make us worthy of God, and we put our faith in God, repentance from dead works, and faith toward God, receiving him for who he is and for what he has done. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no name can be written in the book of life. And on the day when those names will be read out of the book of life, if one has not come through Jesus Christ, one is not written in that book. Because God can do no such great work of remission in the life of one who has not received the gift, who has not come to him by faith, who has not received him but who has instead become offended in him. But you know, Christian, this lesson can apply to our lives as Christians as well. 
We've seen already that Christ does not necessarily deal this way with those who have called, uh, who are called his children. The disciples struggled in their faith, and yet they had already received him. They had already followed him. Uh, so Jesus did not, uh, he, he, he was not constrained to do no mighty works among them per se, in that they had followed him in belief. The disciples struggled in their faith, and Jesus delivered them from the winds and the waves. He rebuked their unbelief, and he taught them about himself. And certainly we find no precedent in the word of God for the idea that a man who is born again can ever become unborn, can ever lose his salvation, that a man safe, kept in grace, can uh, fall short of salvation, uh, that a man can somehow be plucked out of the Father's hand. It's theologically untenable. It's biblically nonsensical. However, God still responds to faith, doesn't he? Not just unbeliever to believer. Not just the man who comes as an unbeliever and accepts the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save him from his sins. We know God responds to that faith. But in the Christian life, God still responds to faith, doesn't he? We know the verse well. I talked about it this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Christian faith pleases God. And those who come to God must believe that he is and that he will reward those who seek him. This is the constraint of God's character. Faith is that which pleases God. You will not please God outside of faith. You can do all the moral works you want all the works that, that we would uh, credit as, as those works that, that are reflective of, of morality and of rightness and even of design. But if they're done outside of faith, they're done carnally. Faith is what pleases God. And if you and I want the rewards of God in this life and the next, beyond just salvation, the blessings of the Christian walk, the fruit of the Spirit, the joy unspeakable and full of glory, these rewards in the, uh, of this life and of the life to come, these rewards are not for the strong. They're not for the swift. They're not for the intelligent. They're not for the accomplished. These rewards are for the faithful. A couple of other thoughts. I've used that phrase several times. Familiarity breeds contempt. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Christian, be careful who and how you judge. We're actually going to talk about this next Sunday morning as well a little bit. But I'm going to get more into some of the nitty-gritty tonight as it relates to that method of judgment as we've talked about it before. Don't allow the source of truth to inhibit your ability to receive truth. Don't allow the look of a man to be the standard by which you choose to reject his message. Jesus was rejected here, and we might say, as we have said, that they were looking for a reason to reject his message. But the fact of the matter is, the reason that they chose is that he is familiar. And this can happen in our own lives as well. And maybe not even uh, intentionally. It has not been uncommon that when we've had someone come through that, that's preached uh, behind this pulpit, that's not me. Um, someone has come up the next week and said, Pastor, so-and-so said this, and it was just, it was really good. And, and I'd sit there and say, wait a minute, I've said that to you a bunch of times before. Well, 
That's not because they don't care about me. It's just that I become familiar. And as I become familiar, it's a little bit easier to just tune some stuff out. It's just what the human mind and human nature does. So you need someone else getting up here saying the same general things to help people hear them in a different way. Maybe he just said it in a different way, whatever it was. Be careful. Be careful that we're not allowing familiarity to breed contempt. Be careful that you're not allowing the source of truth to make you uh, hostile to the truth itself. Sometimes the truth can come from unpalatable sources. It doesn't change the fact that it's true. We're called in the scriptures to judge righteous judgments. The scriptures do not say that a man cannot judge at all. Much to the consternation of those who read judge not lest ye be judged and think this means no judgment is allowed in the Christian life. Much to the contrary, Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5 gives us a standard for judgment. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time. It's not, it's not the, 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 the most applicable, but it's a good place to bubble this up. We've never done it in a in a, a, a Sunday forum, we only did it in our Tuesday forum, but to bubble up this idea of what it is that we are called, how it is that we're called to judge. In Matthew 7, 1 through 5, the Bible says this, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be meted to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. So we're talking about this idea of familiarity breeding contempt. We're talking about how it is that we in the Christian life uh, could become contemptuous uh, of, of people or of sources or of things, uh, maybe that are speaking truth or that are living truth, but that are not aligned with what we would expect them to be. And within these verses, we actually receive a fourfold instruction on what righteous judgment looks like. First, we're called to judge fearfully, recognizing that any judgment is subject to the sowing and reaping principle. Judge others with the same, in the same manner that we were desired to be approached ourselves, to the same degree that we would desire the Lord to deal with us, because this is what he will do. The Lord will deal with us in the manner that we deal with others. So we ought to judge others in the same manner that we would desire to be judged. And that means uh, not the idea of, well, I don't want any judgment on me, but rather the idea of coming outside of myself. If I were the person that I am looking to judge for whatever reason, would I want to be judged on the standard that I'm about to judge him? And there is a place where I can say, in all honesty, yes, by all means, judge me by that standard. I want to be judged by that standard, by that standard of the word of God. And I want you to judge me and I'm going to thus feel comfortable judging you by that standard as well. But not by a standard I would not want someone else to judge me by. And that's the example that I regularly give, right? Of, of us driving in traffic. And when I'm driving in traffic and someone cuts me off and I immediately think of all the reasons why they're evil and why they were, have been planning all day to cut me off and why it is that they had absolutely no excuse to do so. But then if I am driving and I cut somebody else off and I put my hand up and I say, sorry, and I'm hoping that they understand that there was a, a good reason for it and that I'm not a terrible person and I'm not evil. 
because I'm judging myself by a different standard than I'm judging them. We'll talk about hypocritically in a moment. Are, but as you judge another, are you willing to be judged by said standard as well? Not because, not simply because of the do unto others as you would have them do unto you principle, although that's a good one, Luke 6, 34, right? And as you would that men should do to you, do you also to them likewise. But on top of that, because the Bible says that with what measure I meet to others, the Lord will meet to me. That if I'm going to be harsh in my judgment, well then, I should expect that from the Lord. He will treat me as I treat others. If you don't want to be judged by the standard you're judging another, then don't do it. Because God will hold you to it. If you're right with God and man and you're confident that you are judging in that rightness, you can be confident in that judgment. And that's the idea of judging fearfully. Judge fearfully, Christian. Because with what measure you meet, it shall be meted. With what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Second, judge humbly. And this is the idea of hypocritically, not with a hypocritical standard. That goes into the illustration as well. Don't harbor secret sins in your life while judging others on their sins, whether secret or open. Do not impose upon another judgment when you're living in hypocrisy yourself. Does that mean that you cannot judge anyone unless you're sinless? No. But if I am harboring sin in my life, hiding it, or I have redefined the standard of what sin is in order to legitimize my own way of living while simultaneously being hard against someone else's way of living, calling that evil while ignoring my own sin, that's hypocritical. Do not impose upon another judgment when you're living in said hypocrisy. But again, if you are right with God and man, not sinlessly perfect, but standing in your integrity, right with God, then there's no hypocrisy in such judgment. Third, judge lovingly with the intent to understand and help not to impose belittle shame or win. Judgment is not about elevating yourself above another Christian. And if the reason why you are imposing some judgment on another is so that you can feel better or look better than them, so that you can feel better about yourself at their expense or look better in the eyes of others at their expense, That's unrighteous judgment. Judgment is not about elevating yourself above another. Judgment is not about winning an argument. Judgment is not about bending people's actions to your standards or expectations. Judgment is about identifying right and wrong. Understanding where people are and helping them get to where they ought to be in the Lord. So that I go up to a person and I say, hey, brother in Christ, you, you say that you are a brother in Christ, but you're doing this thing. And maybe I'll go to scripture and verse and say, thus saith the Lord. And I'm not judging, I'm judging fearfully. I would want someone else to call me out if I were, if I were in that place. And I'm not judging hypocritically. I'm not imposing upon them a standard while I'm ignoring my own life and my own sin. I'm acknowledging that. And I'm not coming in order to belittle them, in order to shame them, in order to win an argument, in order to impose myself upon them. But I'm simply saying, brother, have you, have you considered what the scriptures say here? And if it is something that is clear, then they will feel the judgment of the scriptures. And by God's grace, they will submit to that. Or they will not. But one way or another, well, we'll talk about this in a moment, 
I've done what I need to do. Or maybe it is that I'll say, brother or sister in Christ, have you ever considered this particular thing? And they'll say, well, that's not really in the Bible. And you say, well, yes, but there's these principles in the Bible and then there's these ideas in the Bible. And so have you considered that maybe even though thus saith the Lord is not there, yet there are these principles that we live by and, and there's wisdom in these things. And, and they would say, wow, yeah, you're, you're right. There's wisdom in those things. Or they might say, well, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I, from what I understand of the word of God and the character of God, uh, that, is not, that is not what I need to do. And then I step away and I say, okay, I was trying to help. I was trying to understand you better. I was trying to understand where, where you were coming from with this, and now I do. And that leads us to our final element of judging righteously, which is judged truthfully. And that comes down to this idea, understanding that God is the only true judge. At the end of the day, Christian, it is not my job to hold people under a standard at all. People are not accountable to me. We say this semi-regularly. When you stand before the throne, it will not be before, you know, Pastor Wickler will not be standing at the right or the left hand of, of Jesus when he's judging you on the, at, at the throne. Your parents won't be there. Your children won't be there. Your church won't be there. You don't answer to me on that spiritual level. Now, we answer to one another in the corporate accountability idea. Granted. Unless delegated by God, such as children to their parents on this earth, wives accountable to husbands on this earth, members accountable to the church on this earth, citizens accountable to their governments on this earth. Yes, we, we recognize those layers of authority and accountability, but even in these settings, God is the final judge. Those under authority don't answer to me for those actions, they answer to God for their actions. To this end, I don't have to nag them stand over them, or get angry at them because I am not their final judge. God is. If I go to someone and I say, hey, brother, have you ever thought about this as it relates to the things of the word of God? And he says, well, you know, yeah, but that's not what I believe about it. And well, can you defend it? Oh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they can, maybe they And I walk away saying, wow, I am not convinced by his reasoning. Okay. But the question I ask is this. And this is the question that I often ask people when, when we've gone back and forth about something and we disagree. And we can't go to chapter and verse where I can simply say, you are wrong on this, brother. The question I ask is this. Can you then say with all honesty and integrity that the day that you stand before the Lord in judgment, you can look your Savior in the eye and answer for that decision? And if my brother in Christ in honesty and integrity, says to me, yes. Okay, then. Well, I will commend you to the day of judgment. I don't have to get up, worked up about it. I don't have to get upset about it. I don't have to get nasty about it. I don't have to start to try to impose myself upon them. I don't have to shame them. I don't have to shun them. I don't have to discard them. I'll just disagree with them. And I say all of this because in Mark 6, these people listened to Jesus and they judged him as unworthy of their faith because he had grown up among them and his family was near them and he was familiar to them. And sure, we can probably, again, accurately and with some measure of confidence 
say that the heart of unbelief was simply looking for a reason not to believe. And rest assured, Christian, you can always find a reason not to believe. You can always find a reason not to exercise faith. You can always find a reason not to listen to wisdom and truth. The heart of man is incredibly capable of self-justification. I don't know that there's any power that the human has greater than the power of self-justification. And God forbid we would be so proud as to do so. But God forbid as well that we would reject the message because of the messenger. That our judgmental spirit should ever withhold from us the power of God to work in our midst because we are unrighteously judging another source. So that the danger of unbelief rests most clearly, certainly in the lives of those who have refused Jesus Christ unto salvation. But let us also be self-aware as believers that through unjust judgment, through pride and that tremendous enemy in our lives that is the enemy of self, we too, even as believers, could walk in such faithlessness, not under perdition, not unto destruction, but most certainly a faithlessness that can inhibit the capacity of our Savior to do great things in us that he would otherwise desire to do. And that is the true warning. The judgment thing brings us back to this warning. And the warning is this, Christian, that there is no expression in the Scripture that tells us that Jesus is unwilling to do great things in us. That through the Spirit of God, Christ desires to work himself in us in a, in, in a, a complete way. And God forbid that the thing that would hinder the capacity of our Savior to do his work through his Spirit in our lives would be faithlessness. That when we read in the Word of God the things that, that, that our Savior would desire to do, we read those things and we say, yes, I see your authority. I know your authority. You've, you, you've saved me by your blood, but... but I'm unwilling. And may that not be us this evening. May we instead submit ourselves to the identity, the person, the work, the power, the authority of our Savior and allow him, not inhibit him from doing those things that he would otherwise do in us in total consistency with his righteous character delighted of the ability of the Spirit of God and our Savior to do the things He desires to do in your life. He desires to do it for you, but you say, no. And may we not be like those in Nazareth this evening, where Jesus, having come, presented himself in order to do these great and mighty works where they are offended in him and he could do no mighty works there. May that not be the reality of our own lives. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.